1: Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply.
2: They seem to want to destroy everything Christian.
0: Exactly, to delete our history. Even here, the statue of Virgin Mary, they destroyed it.
2: The monastery, according to historians, had amassed a collection of manuscripts dating back to the 12th century.
0: This kind of uh, containers.
2: As ISIS was closing in, the resident monks hid the texts in these barrels, which they entombed behind a fake wall. And ISIS
0: never found it? No. because for two years. Exactly. Because the monks were more intelligent than ISIS.
3: The most captivating story in baseball this offseason involves a player who is yet to take his first swing, or for that matter his first pitch, in a major league game. Shohei Otani, a prodigious hitter and fearsome pitcher in Japan, announced his ambitions to take his dual talents to the majors. Not since Babe Ruth has the sports seen anything like him. Watch this. Batting leadoff, Otani hits a home run on the first pitch of the game. Then he throws eight shutout innings, striking out 10 opposing batters with a 100-mile-an-hour fastball.
4: That's a comic book character. Nobody does that, who does that?
5: 60 Minutes is constantly on the lookout for places we've never been before. So when our late colleague, Bob Simon, heard about a magical place in the Hebrides Islands off the coast of Scotland, known for making some of the
1: great whiskies in the world, well, the story spoke to him. <laughs> Cheers. We get literally thousands upon thousands of single-malt tourists coming here. They come from all over the world just to set foot on Island. To study it? No, to drink it.
5: I'm Steve Croft. I'm Leslie Stahl. I'm Scott Pelley. I'm Anderson Cooper.
3: I'm John Wertheim. I'm Bill Whitaker. Those stories tonight on 60
4: Minutes.
2: We have come across an unlikely band of brothers on the battlefield against terrorism. They're men of the cloth, a pair of Padres, who go into harm's way to find and protect ancient religious books and manuscripts. We join them in a region of Iraq that was once Mesopotamia, where human culture and learning really began. It's believed to be the birthplace of mathematics, writing, and agriculture and recently the scene of some of the fiercest battles in the U.S.-backed war against ISIS.
6: I think it's the graffiti that's most horrifying to me.
2: Father Columba, a Benedictine monk from Minnesota, in black, and Father Najib Mikael, a Dominican friar from Iraq, in white, decided to partner up.
0: They destroy everything
2: to rescue what old documents they could from places like this monastery, Mar-Bainam in northern Iraq, that goes back to the fourth century. It was occupied and defaced by ISIS. They seem to want to destroy everything Christian.
0: Exactly. To delete our history, to say that they are no Christian, nothing uh, before Islam. And even here, the statue of Virgin Mary, they destroyed it.
2: The monastery, according to historians, was sacred to both Christians and Muslims in medieval times. It had amassed a collection of manuscripts dating back to the 12th century.
0: In this kind of containers.
2: As ISIS was closing in, the resident monks hid the texts in these barrels, which they entombed behind a fake wall. And ISIS never found it.
0: No, because for two years exactly because the monks more intelligent than ISIS.
2: When this part of Iraq was liberated last year, those intelligent monks returned, drilled through the two walls, found the barrels and the precious handwritten books. So
6: it's the one thing that they couldn't replace, because you could rebuild a building, you can put a new cross-up. Those could not be replaced, and those were saved.
2: There were more than 500 now protected in a house in Erbil, the capital of Kurdistan.
6: In very good condition. Very good condition. Early 5th century author.
2: They include Bibles, scientific works, and this grammar book filled with random doodles scribbled down centuries ago. Fathers Columba and Ajib have been cleaning, restoring, and photographing the documents they have rescued from all over Iraq. In going through them, they're unearthing finds like this copy of a 7th-century contract believed to be a mandate by the Prophet Muhammad that says Christians will be protected from their enemies and allowed to practice their religion.
6: The whole Middle East at one time was characterized by pluralism, different peoples, different languages, different religions coexisting.
2: You know, it's interesting that There are people who are risking their lives to preserve these documents. They're the very documents that ISIS is risking their lives to destroy. You know, there's a war over these books. There's a real war. In that war, ISIS swept across northern Iraq in 2014, causing Christians and Yazidis to flee in desperate caravans. When the city of Karakosh was attacked by ISIS, 50,000 Christians were driven out in a matter of days, many on foot, the ill on makeshift stretchers. Before Father Najib left on the final night of the siege, he gathered up as many books as he could
0: from his monastery there. We have many, many uh, children and many families with us. I, I asked them to carry something with me, uh, so they helped me.
2: Carry the manuscripts Uh, and everything?
0: Even the little girls and boys, 10 to to 12 years, they carry the heritage and manuscripts from 13th, 14th century. I don't save it alone.
2: They raced from Karakosh to the safety of Kurdistan as ISIS fighters chased after them.
0: I saw many hundreds of uh, ISIS flags and cars and they are uh, ready to attack us and to cut our, our route and uh, kill us. Frightening, I feel, totally frightening. I, I feel at that moment is the end of my life and the end of the life of everyone. Then it got worse. When they got to the checkpoint, the Kurdish army, the Peshmerga, wouldn't let them in. The Peshmerga tried to attack uh, ISIS uh, by gun and by uh, fighting like that. And we saw the fire became uh, over our head. You're right in the middle. Uh, We we are in the the, middle middle between both of them. I start to pray in my heart, our Father who art in heaven, forgive us our sin. I start to give the absolution to all all the population, to everyone, Christian or no Christian. And at that moment, sure, we heard a voice, many voices, the uh, checkpoint is open. We are very happy and very quickly start to, uh, to escape at that moment uh, to be in the safe site in Kurdistan.
2: He said it was a miracle that all those lives were saved, but he wasn't able to save all his books. ISIS burned the ones left behind, as we saw when he took us back to his old house in Karakosh. Are
0: you OK, Father? No. <laughs> oh, not OK. I'm so sad from inside.
2: He showed us what Isis did to the 40,000 books that were in his library. That's books? That's books. Oh, oh, you can see the pages. Yeah. And they just torched it's it. Far, yes. The books he did manage to save are here.
0: Here's the Holy of Holies.
2: The Holy of Holies is a room in a secret location in the Kurdish region of northern Iraq. It's where Father Najib is protecting his most treasured possessions. It's
0: a gospel in the New Testament. Look at that. Palm Sunday. This one, when Jesus go to Jerusalem, and with the donkey. And this This uh, is by hand, obviously. All is uh, handwritten. Look at those colors. This with the with egg uh, yellow the, the of, egg yolks uh, mm-hmm.
2: yolk. the yellow is made from egg from, yolks
0: exactly and, and what's the red the do you, gran- you know pomegranate 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 yeah. and
2: it survived
0: yeah
2: it's just one of the 3,500 texts he saved from ISIS books like these from the 16th and 17th centuries that were used by missionaries dispatched by the church to spread Roman
0: Catholicism in this region. And Saint Thomas Aquinas.
2: Some show the ravages of time and war, like this fragment of the New Testament written in about the year 500. And
0: so this is a parchment from 10th, 11th century. So, it's a parchment with a sheep skin.
2: What language is see? that? Hebrew? This is
0: in uh, in Aramaic. Aramaic, Aramaic. that's
2: the language of Jesus. That's
0: the language of Jesus Christ and our
6: mother tongue. And the other thing to remember is that these aren't all religious manuscripts. So some of them are purely history. So those are ones that tell us about political events and kings and battles and famines Mm -hmm. and all of these other things. So it's not simply history of religion, it's Mm -hmm. history of every aspect of life.
2: The base for Father Columba is 6,000 miles from Iraq, at St. John's Abbey and University in Collegeville, Minnesota, where he spends his days with his fellow monks in prayer and contemplation. He's also director of this library, the world's largest repository of ancient texts, more than 50 million pages from both Christian and Islamic works all photographed and archived in an online database. The collection includes the sacred and the secular, like this 1771 account by a priest telling of a plague that killed 45,000 Father Columba founded in Turkey, and this tax receipt from the Roman Empire in the year 222 for the purchase of military equipment. So how do these texts and these manuscripts how do they relate to today? What's the best lesson you've read about?
6: We can learn about places in our past where people could live together reasonably peacefully for certain periods of time and then very often what made it impossible was an external intervention. Oh. So the crusaders come and that makes it very difficult for Christians in the Middle East.
2: He learned that from this 12th-century text that he found in Aleppo, Syria, called World Chronicle by Michael the Great, about how the Crusades triggered a backlash against the local Christians. Until now, scholars tell us, the history of Christianity in the Middle East has largely been told from a Western perspective. These texts provide historical details that cannot be found anywhere else and when taken together, will rewrite this history from the point of view of those who actually lived it. A lot of the places you've gone to are under threat by some radical Islamic group, and you're kind of just following them around. In a sense, where the hotspots are. On this trip to Iraq, he went hunting for old documents at the University of Mosul in a section of the city that had been liberated.
6: So one of our questions is, could anything possibly have survived?
2: The library here, once among the finest in the Middle East, was reduced to rubble in the battle to retake the city. It looks like the apocalypse.
6: It's unbelievable. It's totally devastated.
2: So what what do you think happened here? It must have been an airstrike, uh, the
6: U.S.-backed coalition forces as part of the liberation of Mosul. That Bombed. may have been what started the fire. It must have been a bomb. It came through the roof. And then you can see it coming through two floors and then presumably exploding below. But not ISIS, it was the
2: US-backed forces.
6: Absolutely, so ISIS had been here, had done their damage, had burned their books, and this kind of destruction to the building that we're looking at now would have happened right at the end. Liberation brings a lot of destruction.
2: The university library used to hold about a million books and a collection of ancient maps and manuscripts.
6: It's a horrible loss.
2: In this age of intolerance, there are very few Christians left in Iraq. Many who fled Karakosh with Father Najib have left the country. Others are here in a refugee camp in Erbil, where religion remains at the center of their lives. Even as their presence in Iraq continues to fade, what will always remain, thanks to the work of Fathers Columba and Najib, is a written record of their history and heritage. Now, John Wertheim, executive editor of Sports Illustrated, on assignment for 60 minutes. The most captivating
3: story in baseball this offseason involves a player who has yet to take his first swing, or for that matter his first pitch, in a major league game. Shohei Otani, a fearsome pitcher and prodigious hitter in Japan, announced his ambitions to take his dual talents to the majors. After a fierce recruiting contest among all but a few teams, Otani chose to sign with the Los Angeles Angels. The team not only got a young, potentially transcendent two-way star, they got him at a bargain price a $2.3 million bonus and a salary of barely $550,000, thanks to baseball's international spending rules. As we first reported last April, Otani vows to keep pitching and batting. Should he have the durability to pull it off, he'll be the first major leaguer to moonlight since a guy named Babe Ruth. We traveled to Japan early this year to meet Otani for what was his first interview with an American television network. But we first laid eyes on him in Arizona, where his former team held spring training. This sliver through the fence of a batting cage made for a fitting introduction. We found dozens of Japanese outlets angling for a slice, any slice, of Otani in action. Cameras follow him to the exclusion of every other player on the field. And so do the fans. We met supporters who traveled 5,000 miles to the desert southwest just to watch him train. Having glimpsed the Otani phenomenon on the road, we were eager to explore it on his turf. Our search to find what all the fuss was about took us here to Hokkaido, Japan's northernmost island. It's home to the national champion baseball team, the Nippon Ham Fighters. It's also home to the sport's most intriguing prospect. Shohei Otani looms large in the snowy Hokkaido town of Sapporo. If Tokyo is a fastball, Sapporo is a curveball. Japan's fifth largest city feels not unlike a laid-back ski village. But this is a baseball town, and this is the home stadium, the Sapporo Dome. It's here we sat down with Otani. We broke the ice with a question about what we'd heard was his favorite local fast food. Very important question. <laughs> in and out
4: Burger. Mm.
3: Captain Kangaroo Burger. <laughs> Captain Kangaroo, better. <laughs> Towering and affable, Otani's up? working on his English, but felt more comfortable using a translator during our interview. I, I want to ask you about coming to the majors, but sh- should we say if or should we say when?
4: 難しいですね. <laughs> That's a tough one. Well, I mean, nothing is for certain, so I guess it's if. How will you know when you're Despite that cautious
3: response, Otani eagerly revealed which major league players he looks most forward to facing. No less than MVP hitter Bryce Harper and star pitcher Clayton Kershaw.
4: Bryce I watch Bryce Harper, Clayton Kershaw. Pitcher and a hitter. <laughs> yeah, unlike me, Kershaw is a lefty you see a little of yourself in both Kershaw and Harper? I actually do see myself. And I actually try throwing lefty sometimes. How do you think you do against Kershaw? Just thinking about facing him makes me really happy and excited. I could just tell he's such a great pitcher through the TV screen. How would you pitch to Harper? I would have to go with my best pitch, which is the fastball. I want to see how my best pitch fares against one of the best hitters likely quite well. Throwing his
3: dancing fastball, Otani strikes out batters at a higher rate than Kershaw. Unfurling his violent, yet somehow elegant swing, he hits home runs at a higher rate than Harper. There are days Otani makes baseball look almost laughably easy. Consider this performance last summer. On the very first pitch of the game, Otani, batting leadoff, hit a home run. He then pitched eight shutout innings and struck out 10 batters. At six foot four, the designated hitter turned pitcher reliably brings the crowd to its feet. When he threw the fastest pitch, breaking his own record, even opponents looked on in astonishment. Last year, you threw a pitch 165 kilometers an hour, more than 102 miles an hour. How
4: much faster can you throw? (laughs) one hundred two I don't have an exact answer for that, but I'm still young. I'm still 22. I think there's more room to grow. As seasons go,
3: 2016 will be hard to top. The Hokkaido Nippon Ham fighters took the Japan series. Otani was his league's MVP. About that name, the fighters are owned by Nippon Ham, makers of Japan's best-selling sausages. And while, yes, the name resists serious treatment, the team itself is widely regarded as the most innovative in the league. Manager Hideki Kuriyama leads the fighters, also the former team of Yu Darvish, now an ace for the Texas Rangers. Can you compare this to anything you've seen? Yeah,
5: No, never seen anything like it, never.
3: What's it like having a player who's your best pitcher and also your best hitter?
7: He's so talented. It's really tough to use him the right way, with the right balance.
3: If you thought got money ball, the practice of using baseball data over intuition, contorted a manager's conventional thinking, try overseeing a two-way player. Kuriyama's formula? He pitches Otani on Sundays, then bats him the rest of the week, with a day or two off before each start. Distractions are to be kept to a minimum. Same goes for praise. Shohei Otani may be the star of the team, but Kuriyama doesn't exactly coddle
4: the guy. Last year when we won the championship, it was the first time he gave me a compliment. And he said, that was great pitching. Never complimented you before that. (laughs) Not once. He always says, you've got to get better. (laughs) and Kuriyama has his reasons.
3: I truly believe he's a lot better than where he's at right now. The crowd at the Sapporo Dome is less stingy with its praise. You don't get a lot of quiet time here, no peanuts and Cracker Jacks either, but plenty of the local beer. A college football-style atmosphere pervades. The caliber of play is considered one level below the major leagues in America. Top Japanese players, names like Ichiro and Matsui, aspire to compete against the very best in the U.S. Even amid such companies, Shohei Otani sticks out. Expat John Gibson has reported on Japanese baseball for 20 years. What's it like covering this guy? You think about a guy who throws 101 and then a guy who hits home runs and that's a comic book character. That's not somebody you're thinking about in real life. You know, nobody
4: does that. Who does that?
3: We'd hoped to leave the Sapporo Dome with Otani, get to know the mortal behind the comic book character. Thank you. But he politely declined our invitation. Not even a quick Captain Kangaroo burger. So we invited a couple of his teammates instead. Brandon Laird and Luis Mendoza are two of the team's Gaijin, or foreign players. Laird saw action as a Yankee. Mendoza once pitched for the Rangers and the Royals. Sapporo's not a bad place to be a Gaijin. How you doing? Good. Good to see you. Over dinner at their favorite spot in town, Laird told us that Otani is the most talented teammate he's ever had. This from a guy who played with Derek Jeter and Alex Rodriguez.
5: Some pitchers can hit, but I mean, he actually does it in a game, like he's in our lineup you know, and it's impressive.
0: Watch him hit the ball, I um, mean, it's like a Miguel Cabrera, you know, power, kind of power, you know. He
5: reminds you of Cabrera? Yeah, definitely. You guys been out with him? Uh, no, I mean, he doesn't really do anything. He's just, just mellow kid, just goes back to the dorm.
3: Yes, the biggest star in Japanese baseball, with a reported salary of roughly $2 million, apart from not owning a car, lives in these minimalist team
2: dorms.
3: (laughs) Otani confirmed to us that he seldom leaves the facility. Not that it keeps fans from waiting for him outside. Even from a distance, plenty of observations can be made about the pitching slugger, or the slugging pitcher. He is meticulous, stopping mid-pitch to adjust his form open to advice from his batting coaches. Even baseball tedium provides a source of enjoyment. This is someone who plays baseball but has always worked at it, too. Otani grew up in a small industrial town on Japan's mainland. His father, once an amateur player himself, coached his son's little league teams. Shohei Otani showed promise as a hitter but drew more interest as a pitcher occasioning stealth visits from American scouts while he was still in high school. At age 18, he held a press conference to announce his major league intentions, and went so far as to tell Japanese teams not to draft him. But the Nippon Ham fighters, again known for doing
4: things their own way, drafted him nonetheless. Uh, to Every other team besides the fighters was looking at me as a pitcher. But the fighters were going to allow me to do both pitching and hitting. Honestly, I wasn't even thinking about doing both on a professional level. But they approached me in that way, and I wanted to take the chance. That's that your fastball grip? Fastball.
3: Splitter. You have a splitter? True to their word, the fighters have cultivated Otani as a hitter as well as a pitcher. We asked him about his forebear. People have compared you to Babe Ruth. What do you think about when you hear the name Babe Ruth?
4: He's like a mythical character to me. (laughs) Because it's such a long time ago and he was God to baseball. I shouldn't be compared to him, at least not right now. But
3: maybe someday soon. The fighters have said they'll permit Otani to negotiate with major league teams after this season. Hideki Kuriyama says the time is right.
6: For our team, we're all for him going to the States.
3: Best player on the team, this amazing two-way talent, you're okay with him going to the major
0: leagues? Yeah,
7: as a manager, it's going to hurt. It's tough that way. But more than that, I want him to succeed.
3: Back in the U.S., news of Otani's imminent arrival was a hot topic at spring training. Though, weary of tipping their hand, execs we approached would only talk off-camera. Dave DeFreitas was a scout for the Yankees and the Indians. He watched Otani come of age in Japan. Now independent, he produces scouting reports for the website 2080 Baseball.
5: Everybody is interested. Scouts are going over there all year this year to watch him. I think if tells you they're not interested they're probably lying to you <laughs> it's uh you're talking about a, a young kid that's one of the best talents in the game on the
3: planet otani told us he doesn't have an agent yet but he's going to need one his path to the majors won't exactly be straightforward a new collective bargaining agreement caps at six million dollars what teams can pay any foreign player under the age of 25 even those who ritually send balls digging into the outfield seats By coming before he turns 25, Otani could be leaving tens if not hundreds of millions of dollars on the table. The timing of when
4: you come to the majors could make a big, big difference in terms of salary. Does that concern you? Personally, I don't care how much I get paid or how much less I get paid because of this. This may be the rare case where it's not about the money. Rather
3: the deal with Otani may hinge on which team will let him keep pitching and hitting. You think he's in a position now where he can say to teams, listen, if you're not gonna play me both ways, I'm probably not your guy. I think he won't even talk to them if they don't. I think he won't even have a meeting with them. No matter where he ends up, it's hard to root against the great Otani experiment. Here in Sapporo, where his departure will be bittersweet, they'll be cheering the loudest.
5: 60 Minutes is constantly on the lookout for places we've never been before. So when our late colleague Bob Simon heard about a magical place in the Hebrides Islands off the coast of Scotland, known for making some of the great whiskies in the world, well, the story spoke to him. The place is called Islay, and it's one of five whiskey-producing regions in Scotland that make an expensive type of scotch called single malt. Isla's distilleries turn out relatively small amounts of their own handcrafted brands for a worldwide luxury market that's more than doubled in size in the last decade. It'd become the spirit equivalent of the fine wine business. Bob liked good scotch in beautiful places, so he went off to Scotland. He died before he could finish the piece, leaving behind a stack of videotapes and some random notes. Back in 2015, we decided to finish it for him and raise a glass in his memory. Islay is a small island 20 miles off the west coast of Scotland. There are few trees, miles of windswept heather, and some of the most fertile agricultural land in Scotland. There are sheep and cattle everywhere and an abundance of wildlife. But that's not why people come here. This is eight small distilleries that produce some of the world's finest single malt whiskies.
1: This is the whole lifeblood of this island and everybody on it. This is all we know. Jim McEwen has been
5: working at Isla's distillery since he was 15 years old. He's now master of the works at Bruklati.
1: I just thank God that he chose the Scots and gave them whiskey, because we appreciate the gift and we look after it.
5: They've been making it here since the 15th century, when supposedly some monks taught the locals how to use barley, water, and yeast to make a spirit the Scots now call the water of life. They've been perfecting it for 600 years. The distilleries are easy to find, but hard to pronounce. Ardbeg, Bamor, Bukladi, Bunahaban, Kualila, Kilhoman, Lagavulin, and Lafroy. As Bob Simon noted, they get harder to pronounce
1: the more you visit. For us guys in the west coast of Scotland, whiskey is a religion because it's a provider. And the great thing about whiskey is it's not just a drink. It's much more than that. Have you ever watched some old Hollywood movies? Yes, I have. <laughs> scotch was always portrayed in Hollywood as a whiskey when you were down or you were in trouble. The one thing that was going to get you back in your feet and out there was a the scotch.
5: Today, if you're down on your luck, you probably can't afford an Isla Single malt. The good ones started around $70 a bottle. The rare ones can go for hundreds of dollars a glass at chic whiskey bars around the world where they're known for their distinctive smoky taste. It comes from peat, the mossy earthen fuel that's cut from bogs on the island. It was used to heat Scottish homes for centuries and is still used to toast the barley at Isla Distilleries. John Campbell is the master distiller at Lefroy one of the top-selling single malts in America
0: peat is the thing that makes Islay unique and it really resonates with people and it just engenders a kind of love-hate relationship and the people that love it absolutely love it with a passion
5: and there seems to be no shortage of them islay is not easy to get to usually requiring multiple flights a long drive and a two-hour ferry ride yet enthusiasts continue to make the pilgrimage especially for the whiskey festival
1: we get literally Thousands upon thousands of single malt tourists coming here. They come from all over the world just to set foot on Isla. To study it? No, to drink it. It's lovely. It's clean. It's fresh. It's vibrant.
5: Officially, Whiskey Fest is a celebration of Isla's culture, but mostly it's about
1: drinking. Absolutely beautiful. No off notes at all. As they listened to Jim
5: McEwen extol the virtues of Brooklottie, the novitiates, connoisseurs, and whiskey snobs approached each glass with reverence bordering on the religious.
1: Oh, wow. The fruit in that is incredible.
5: As the glasses empty, the smiles got bigger. But the islanders will tell you that all of this warmth and good feeling comes not from the alcohol in the spirits, but from the spirit of the place. It is almost mystical, beautiful, dramatic, and quiet. There's no road rage, barely any traffic. If you do get hung up, it's probably because of a farm animal. They have the right of way. And if you do happen upon people, they'll almost always greet you with the Isla wave.
4: So everybody just waves, because it's just friendly. There's not so many of us, so you just wave to say hi.
5: It's what Elsa Hayes liked about the island when she moved her family here from London to take a manager's position at one of Isla's thriving distilleries. It's strange is it not, it's not that such a small place with so few people your products are known everywhere in the world. I know,
4: but it makes us all very proud, it does. There's such a boom worldwide for, for single malts. Um, it's fantastic and you can really feel that on the island. A lot of the distilleries have doubled production and um, so there's a lot of opportunities there as well.
6: And there's no reason to believe that that won't
5: continue.
4: Well, times are good people drink, times are bad people drink.
5: (laughs) Is it possible to be socially acceptable to be a teetotaler on this island?
4: Yes. Are there any? Yes. (laughs) No, I'm not one of
2: them.
5: (laughs) Over the years, the island's people have learned how to entertain themselves, often at gatherings called Cayleys, which feature traditional dance and sad songs, mostly about leaving Isla and yearning to return. TO SIT WITH MY LOVE ON THE BRIDGE ABOVE THE
0: RIPPLING
5: WATERFALL
0: TO GO BACK HOME NEVER MORE TO ROAM IS MY DEAREST WISH
5: OF ALL IF THIS LOOKS AND FEELS A LOT LIKE IRELAND, THAT'S NO COINCIDENCE. IT'S ONLY 25 MILES AWAY. They come from the same tribe, share the same Celtic culture and Gaelic language, not to mention a love of good whiskey that gets them through stormy weather and the long winter nights. There are no movie theaters on Isla, no dry cleaners, no supermarkets, no McDonald's, at least in the fast food business. Jim McEwen says there's a long list of things that Isla doesn't have and doesn't want.
1: We don't have any crime. We don't have mugging, carjacking housebreaking rape just dope drugs we don't have that you can keep that you're very welcome to it how do you explain the fact that there's no crime here there's crime everywhere else. if you commit a crime in a small community you will be ostracized and have to leave not only that your family your your children and your children's children will be remembered as the children of the man who committed the crime.
5: Most Scots are forthright, practical people who are proud of their country and the fact that their most famous export has withstood the test of time. They see themselves as artisans, and making whiskey is more about art and alchemy than manufacturing. Every distiller has their own secrets and superstitions. We'll give you the unclassified two-minute tour. Sorry, we can't offer you free samples. It begins with a bit of trickery on the molting floor when barley that's been soaked in water is spread out and raked over and over to convince the grain it's spring and time to germinate, releasing the starches that are locked inside. It's then dried with peat smoke to add flavor and ground into flour, sometimes with 19th century machinery, and then mixed with hot water transforming the starches into a sugary concoction called mash.
1: Smell that, Bob. Oh, yeah. That, you can smell the goodness. Yeast
5: is then added, changing the sugar into alcohol, a primitive ale which is then cooked a couple of times in copper stills where the vapor is collected and condensed into this clear liquid.
1: And that's the stuff we want to go into the barrel. But
5: what I'm looking at is this looks like rubbing alcohol, This is, in fact, the whiskey. It's very good. If you need a
1: rub, there's no doubt about it. (laughs) I bet it would be good. But once it goes into the barrel, from then it's just time. It's just time. It's a great journey, you know? This is a child, but the cask is the mother. And that's what makes the journey. If you give a good cask, you're bound to get a good child. It's that simple. It takes less than three
5: weeks to make, but requires at least 10 years of aging in these oak casks, which add
1: flavor and color to turn it into world-class single malt whiskey. You'll see some of the names, there's Clement Springs, Buffalo Trace, Jim Beam.
5: Bob was surprised to learn that 97% of the casks used to make single malt whiskey had been previously used to age American bourbon and bought secondhand from U.S. distillers. It's testimony to the ingenuity and frugality of the Scots, who have very few oak trees.
1: Without the American barrel, there would be no whiskey industry. It's as simple as that.
5: A sophisticated palate will detect a hint of the oak and bourbon in Isla's single malt, as well as the sweetness of sherry that comes from wine casks bought in Europe. Before the final product is sold, it will have done time in a number of different casks. Master distiller Jim McEwen is the one who decides when to rotate them and when each barrel is ready to be bottled. He opened a young cask for Bob to sample.
1: I would describe that as mellow yellow, absolutely pure. And it's only seven years old. That's right, young whiskies are like young people. They're vibrant, they're full of life. In fact, this for me is like coming home from work. At the end of the day, I work really hard and uh, nobody appreciates me, my wife doesn't appreciate me, my kids don't appreciate me, life's a bitch. <clears throat> couple so of glasses of that is, and it doesn't matter. Couple of shots of that and I am the king of the world. Absolutely. You know, I, frankly, I never like this stuff, but the way you're talking me into it. But you gotta check every bar. I certainly also. So, yeah. Cheers.
5: McEwen is the man responsible for the taste and consistency of the whiskeys at Brookblotty, which requires a very personal involvement with the product.
1: I have heard you described as the cask whisperer. I do talk to casks, uh, there's no doubt about it. In what uh, language? Uh, mainly English, and it depends on many whiskies I've had. If I have a few whiskies, I tend to revert to the Gaelic language I'm talking to the cask. It's just one of these things, you go into the warehouse and you pop the bung out, and you draw your sample, yeah? And you look at it and you think, wow, yeah, beautiful. But you're not just ready yet, tell you what, I'm gonna come back and see you in three months, okay? And other times you find a cask which is so incredibly good, you can't not speak. Oh my God, you are the most beautiful thing I have Mm. ever tasted in my life. You know, and you think, oh geez, I just wanna share this with somebody. But there's nobody around, there's just me and the cask. We'll stay.
5: (laughs) (laughs) On most days, McEwen devotes several hours to quality control, checking up on several hundred
1: casks. But it's a fantastic job. Um uh, nosing and tasting whiskies, And you can still walk out of here in the evening? Occasionally I need some help, there's no doubt about that, yeah.
5: Dying devotion to one's whiskey is apparently not all that unusual. While we were on island, the camera crew ran into a party of Canadians, the friends and family of a deceased single malt lover named Bill, who wanted his ashes scattered in the waters opposite his favourite distillery. Funds for the pilgrimage were set aside in his will.
4: That's why he wanted. It. It's good. It's good. Jubal. 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 Now he's
2: happy. Now
3: he's
2: happy.
5: After that, the only thing left was for Bob to say goodbye to Jim McEwen, and it turned out to be last call for our old pal Bob Simon.
1: Cheers, Bob. Hope you've enjoyed this little visit here. You're speaking in the past. It's not over. Yeah, I'm going to get you out of here, man. This is (laughs) costing me a fortune. Picking up the
5: pieces. How Bob Simon's unfinished Whiskey Island story finally made it on the air. Go to 60MinutesOvertime.com
7: 50 seasons of 60 Minutes. This week from 2007 when Andy Rooney looked back at some of his Christmas pieces past. Someone asked what I was going to do for a Christmas piece on television this year. Well, I'm not going to do a Christmas piece this year. You know how it is when you can't think of anything to give someone that you haven't given them before. That's how I feel about Christmas television pieces. Over the years, I've done a lot of them. Cut the piece of paper so you don't waste paper. Clip it right across where you've measured it. You can save this for another present later. Then fold it over the top like this. Well, that does happen once in a while. One last thing about Christmas music. No radio or television station would be permitted, under the threat of revocation of its license, to play Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer more than five times during any one Christmas season. you go down in
0: history.
7: That's once. Wrapping Christmas presents is nice, but it's a strange custom when you think of it. Why is it that we get more pleasure from giving or getting a present that's temporarily concealed from our eyes than from one that isn't? Last year, I did gross decorations. How would you like to live next door to this? These people in New Jersey must own stock in the power company. Honey, don't forget to turn the lights out when you come to bed. That's my Christmas piece this year. If you don't like it, return it in the original box within 10 days and get your money back. And have a Merry Christmas, and I mean that. I'm Bill Whitaker. Merry Christmas.
6: We'll be back New Year's Eve with a special edition of 60 Minutes Presents.